listening to Buena Vibra with Dr. Ortiz. The content in this podcast is strictly informational and does not substitute psychotherapy treatment or replace the process for clinical diagnosis or psychological prognosis. Hola, Buena Vibra. This is Dr. Ortiz, and thank you again for joining me on another episode of Buena Vibra with Dr. Ortiz. My guest today is Jessica Lascano, and if you recall, she was in a previous episode, and uh, and as a uh, I'm sorry, introducing herself as an associate professional clinical counselor um, uh, with Buena Vibra Psychological Services. And today I want to introduce her as a licensed educational psychologist and a board certified behavioral analyst who's been working in the field within education for nearly 20 years. So welcome back, Jessica, and um, thank you for joining me and um, yeah, to help, you know, to, to help our viewers understand you and the work that you've been doing um, prior to becoming, uh, prior to to your interest in becoming a, a, a therapist. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to share more about my experience and to help people if they need it. Absolutely. So, um, so, so help us understand a little bit more about your background. Um, because you have some really nice titles, um, <laughs> licensed educational psychologist and board certified behavioral analyst. What does that mean? Okay, so in the state of California, you can become a licensed educational psychologist with the Board of Behavioral Sciences. If you have some experience as a school psychologist and then you take a test, you pass the test at a certain level and you basically, you know, prove that you can work independently. Licensed educational psychologists are different than clinical psychologists. Of course, the major difference is we're not at a doctoral level. So you, you can be at a doctoral level, but it's not a requirement. Um, the second thing is that when we're, you know, working with people outside of the school setting. So when we're working privately, a, a lot of what we do is going to be with kids. And even when we're working with adults, it's going to typically involve education in some way. So if we were providing an assessment, it would be for education or educational purposes. However, it can get pretty broad because as we know, mental health, other developmental conditions can impact a person's education. So it's not like they put that on the shelf when they go to school. Uh, it's their whole person, right? So when we're doing these kind of assessments, uh, we do delve into social emotional history, mental health status, and sometimes we may privately use the uh, DSM to do some diagnostic work as well. Okay. So, yeah. And then I can tell you a little bit about the BCBA as well. So the BCBA, Sports Certified Behavior Analyst, and that is under a national board. Um, it's not really certified by the government or anything. It's called the BACB, which is... Um, the behavior analyst um, certification board. And basically that is a board that makes sure that anyone who becomes a BCBA has taken a certain verified course sequence. We have to take a certain amount of classes. We have to do a certain amount of hours and we have to also pass a test. So there's these couple of steps you need to take, but once you're, you've passed that, you can begin to work independently uh, supporting behavior change. A lot of people, when they hear BCBA, they immediately think autism, but a BCBA can have more broad skills than that. So, you know, it really is working with all behaviors and there are different BCBAs who have uh, different 
you know, types of experiences like, you know, weight loss or geriatric mm. care, uh, medicine compliance, eating disorders, etc. So it's very broad, but autism is the most frequently heard of, you know, uh, mm-hmm. area that where BCBAs work. Wow. Okay. So, and so as far as um, your work, when you say, you know, um, working as a licensed educational psychologist, um, what has your, um, what have your clients look like? Like, where are they and and how do they get access to you um, within the system? Yeah. So for a while, what I did was just provide kind of, you know, independent assessment as an individual. So sort of like a sole proprietor where I would, you know, contract with districts or with SELPAs, which are these educational agencies we have in California that kind of provide supervision or support for school districts. So I would either provide what we call independent educational evaluations. Every parent has a right to ask for that sort of evaluation if they're in disagreement with the school district's evaluation of their child. And the school district has an obligation to provide an assessor. So I've done a assessment in that way. But more recently, I've opened my own business. It's called Strive ABC. And with Strive ABC, I more formally, formally, excuse me, uh, provide uh, assessment, behavior support and consultation. And so if someone were to come in and see me, I could work directly with them. Of course, ethically, my obligation is always to let parents know that you can get this sort of assessment for free from a school district. But sometimes parents want something more or something different, and they're looking for an outside assessor uh, beyond that independent educational evaluation and beyond an in-school assessment. Okay. And so, um, so when you are assessing um, students, you know, what, what, what are some of, you know, I'm sure there's a, a, a huge spectrum of different types of um, educational supports that can be offered to these students based on what their needs are. And so can you describe a little bit about like um, what are some of these um uh, what, what that looks like and and um, maybe from like the most severe to the least, um, sure. you know, generally speaking. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it really just depends on the student's needs. So all of our assessment when we're doing psychoeducational assessment, you know, whether that be privately or in schools, should start with some assessment questions. And those are the questions that we're going to answer throughout our assessment and really focus on. And, you know, the other thing that's really important is any person that a parent or family or school district is working with to provide this sort of assessment, they need to have flexibility because the assessment question at the beginning is not always the same assessment question as you move into the assessment. Because through the process of assessment, we discover new information, especially when you work directly with a child. And a lot of times you see things that maybe no one else caught or no one else saw, and now your assessment question sort of changes. So depending on what the data says when your assessment is done, there are different types of suggestions we can make. And so whether or not uh, those suggestions are going to be received by a school district, if I'm doing this assessment privately, is really up to the school district. They have the right legally to determine what they want to consider on the assessment that an outside assessment uh, person brings in or that a parent brings in, but they do have an obligation to consider what's in the report. So typically when we're thinking about some types of recommendations that might be in an assessment um, that's done 
you know, by a private assessor like me, uh, it would likely be evidence and research-based sort of intervention, um, particularly for where the student has needs. So for example, if they have like academic needs, then we're going to talk about how can we recover some of their missing skills? What area are those skills missing in? Is it reading? Is it writing? Is it math? Is it logic? Uh, depending upon, you know, where those problems fall, we may suggest, hey, they should go to this particular tutoring company or this particular um, you know, service that's provided outside of the school or, hey, school, maybe you should consider giving them more special education minutes or specific types of supports. But if they have other sorts of challenges, for example, uh, social emotional regulation or, you know, maybe even uh, managing emotions, then we could, you know, talk with the school district about providing some supports in school. So we might give like a list of things that they could do or options they should consider, including, you know, some sort of of, uh, in-school therapeutic supports if those are available and if the child meets the criteria. Outside, we may want to link them up with a therapist or a counselor or sometimes recommend that the family go and visit a psychologist or in extreme cases, they may need to see a psychiatrist because there may be some, uh, you know, medical needs that are unaddressed. Um, and then additionally, you know, we may offer or um, recommend, you know, other types of support that are kind of unconventional, like mentoring or mm -hmm. participation in activities like, you know, gymnastics or sports and things like that. Okay. So it really does, um, uh, it doesn't sound like there's a limitation. It, it really is dependent in, um, on each individual um, student's uh, needs. Um, yeah. and, and what I'm understanding is that uh, the work that you really do is, is really set on uh, the educational setting, like how the child is functioning within the educational setting. Uh, you're mentioning if a child uh, exhibits social emotional um, concerns, um, it, it, that also too has to be present in the academic setting in order for them to, um, be considered like, you yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And like, typically, you know, for most kids I work with, they, they are unable to set aside, you know, these challenges that they're having when they go to school. Right. Typically, right. it's kind of coming out here, there, and everywhere. So, you know, most of the time, if they're showing up on assessment as having these high levels of, you know, challenges with social emotional regulation or even high levels of, um, you know, behavioral needs and things, those problems exist at school as well, because they don't, they don't come home and take all that off or go to school and take all that off, right? So mm -hmm. typically, um, they're showing these challenges somewhere, but you once in a while do get these kids who somehow, some way, and probably not for good reasons, they're probably emotionally stuffing, can get to school and kind of put everything aside and engage. Um, it's not common. It does happen. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have to be looking out for some of these internalizing behaviors where uh, some of these manifestations may be underneath the surface and we might not just be catching them. Mm -hmm. Right. And so um, and so for parents, like how do they even learn that these like um, uh, services exist? Because, you know, when I was uh, Jesus, almost like uh, nearly 20 years ago in, in my training, um, I worked in a community mental health, uh, clinic who also, which also had a non-public school setting. 
And, you know, for those of you who don't know what a public, a non-public school setting is, it's um, children who are not able to function academically in a regular school-based setting are considered for these types of settings that are more structured, the classrooms are smaller, um, and there's a lot more um, adult aid for each child. And so I do have the experience of working with um, with, with uh, students, teachers, um, uh, school psychologists, the uh, IEP coordinators, um, and and unless and one of the things that I also saw when I wasn't working there, but then moved into the work with um, within the county of of LA Department of Mental Health, and even now in private practice, um, there's a lot of parents out there who don't know that these services exist, have never heard of it, and feel really stuck. Um, so, so how can a parent go about navigating and, and learning more about this? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question because it's something that I hear from parents all the time. And again, uh, you know, I just want to disclose that I also have a child who has an IEP. So mm-hmm. I've been through it from that parent perspective. I mentioned that in our last, um, you know, uh, interaction that my son is dyslexic. So, you know, I've, I've experienced um, the parent side of things. And I first, I just want to validate and say it could be very stressful. It can be overwhelming. And even if you have the tools like I do, you may still feel uh, ill-equipped or uncomfortable as you enter into these meetings. And that's because, you know, our children are, are you know, most valuable people in our life, right? And so um, the stakes are high. And mm-hmm. so there's some discomfort with that. And we know that there may be conflict. So understanding that um, what's really important for parents to know if their child is already identified as you know a student who has a disability and who has either an IEP or a 504 the parent should be receiving some sort of a copy of parent rights most of the time parents when they get these they just put them aside and they say okay thank you you know they never really read them so that's my first tip read those parent rights they may also be called procedural safeguards within that there are a lot of things that are outlined that are basic you know, requirements the school district has to meet and basic rights that both the parent and the child themselves have. So that's number one. Secondly, um, is asking questions. So always feel free to ask your school team questions. Don't feel like you are uh, limited or that you're bothering them because a good school team is going to want you to ask these questions so that you can better participate in the IEP process itself. Um, And the third thing is, you know, if you're not able to get what you need or you're feeling like you're stuck, there's always an opportunity to look for advocates that can help you. I don't always recommend going that route because sometimes, you know, advocates may not be so um, educated within, you know, the way special education law works. I always kind of lean towards attorneys because they actually do have special experience with the law. But for a lot of people, that can be a really big step and maybe they don't want to go, you know, to this legal realm. And so they just want the help of an advocate to support them and looking through things and kind of seeing what's what and understanding their rights. So that's also something that they can do. And of course, that final step would be getting an attorney um, if it seems that there's just no way to facilitate or um, effectively communicate, you know, with that IEP team or, you know, for parents to understand what supports they need. But if the child has an IEP, I can say this. Every child who has an IEP legally is 
protected and supported by this federal law called IDEA. It's known as IDEA 2004. That's the most recent update. And there are a lot of things that are offered within IDEA and uh, rights that are protected. And one of those is that uh, parents can ask for an IEE, which is an independent educational evaluation, if they have some disagreement, hesitation, reservation with the school district's assessment. This might not always be the case, but if you're thinking, hey, you know, I had these questions about autism and this assessment only looked at a learning disability and I asked as a parent multiple times, can you look into autism and no one did it. You can then ask for this IEE to look into the areas that that assessment at the school didn't look into. And that is at no cost to parents. Um, and again, the school district must retain a list of assessors in some way, shape or form. They may refer the families to the local SELPA who will also have that list and the parent then can move forward. Most of the time, the school district's not gonna say no, especially if the school district's looking at their assessment and saying, wow, you know, we really didn't answer this parent's questions. Now, if the child does not yet have an IEP, parent can't do that. They have to first mm -hmm. ask for the IEP and have the assessment. So you can't really contest something that doesn't exist, right? So the only okay. way you can contest is when that assessment is done. Now, parents can also privately seek this sort of assessment that I provide. Um, it's expensive. That's why I always try to encourage parents to go the route through their school district um, because that's a free service. And most of the time you have pretty good assessors in schools. Every now and again, you get one that doesn't you know, do what the parent's asking. But for, for the most part, you do have good assessors. The thing is that in schools, all assessment is going to be toward the areas of eligibility that are established in the law. And there's 13 of them in California. So if there are other questions, for example, the parent's like, well, I'm worried that my child is bipolar and how is that impacting them? Well, that's not technically a special education area that would qualify a student. We do have emotional disturbance. That might be a little different. Some parents might be uncomfortable there. They might just want to learn more about how bipolar disorder might impact their child that's probably gonna require this outside type of assessment that the school's really gonna say, well, that's not a school assessment question that we have, but maybe the school will guide the parent and say, well, we can look into emotional disturbance and you know, we can do that. And maybe the parent is comfortable or uncomfortable. Maybe they wanna seek out outside assessment because they don't want that you know, stigma stigmatization. They don't want their child to be stigmatized. They feel like, hey, I don't want that label. And you know, I, that's everybody's decision, their own decision. So anyway, you can also seek my type of services privately, uh, but I will always encourage parents to first work with their school district if they have educationally related concerns. Thank you for that. Um, very comprehensive. And I think, you know, I, I, I think it's really helpful for parents to just get an understanding of that, you know, and um, especially nowadays with, um, you know, students transitioning back into the, uh, into the school setting and um, there's a lot, there's a, a, a great need for students um, who are having a really difficult time adapting to the classroom setting to, you know, just the, the, the learning environment and, you um, uh, I'm 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 sure that you know the schools are inundated and and just flooded with a lot of um, concerned parents. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to transition over to the board certified behavioral analyst side because mm -hmm. um, you say you know one of the things you mentioned was that it's um, it, it, it's the, the the support and services within um, the the BCBEA um can be offered to a variety of different um 
needs. And it's often known to be used for, you know, um, individuals in the spectrum. And so I'm really curious to uh, learn more about um, what are some of these other uh, areas that, that it could be useful for? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm so glad you're giving me the opportunity to talk about it because, you know, there are there's some bad press out there about applied behavior analysis, which is mm. the main form of uh, science that a BCBA is going to use, right? And the reason I say there's bad press out there is because you have people who felt that, you know, ABA services provided to them as autistic individuals were aversive. Um, and ABA services should not be aversive. They should be supportive and comprehensive and really leaning towards reinforcement uh, rather than punishment. But unfortunately, not all providers are created equal. So we have some work to do there as far as that's concerned. So if you're listening and you're feeling like, well, those are aversive services, give me a chance to tell you a little more about some things that ABA can do that are really positive. Um, so first of all, you know, ABA can teach. So because um, ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis, is really, you know, this way of teaching. At the end of the day, it's a way of helping people to acquire skills. You can take it and use it to do things like tutoring. So, for example, my son goes to a tutoring center that's based on ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis, and he's been able to recover uh, his reading. He went from below preschool to fifth grade level in two years using two ABA-based techniques, uh, persistent teaching and direct instruction. And so um, that has been great. They do math, they do logic um, there as well. And I think some, you know, writing, but it's not like a, a focus. Um, beyond that, right, I talked a little bit about exercise. So there are coaches who use these same principles uh, direct instruction or persistent teaching to coach their boxers or their uh, players, like if they have like a player, you know, of, of a sport like basketball to teach them certain skills. And it's just, a, there's reinforcement you give for them doing the right thing. Uh, you know, you give them, you know, certain kinds of feedback and then you kind of avoid feedback when they're doing the move incorrectly, or you break down where's the mistake happening. And those are all ABA based techniques. Uh, so it can be really helpful for teaching a skill like in sports and then health and fitness, right? If a person is tracking their data and they're looking how many, um, miles did I walk this week? How many pounds did I lift this week? How many minutes did I work out this week? They can create goals and then track data and reinforce themselves for meeting those goals um, in many different types of ways. I mentioned medication compliance. So you can, you know, help patients to be compliant with taking their medication by using, you know, this tracking and reinforcement, um, you know, give, maybe having privileges, you know, I'm thinking here, okay, if I were in a day center where people needed to take their medication as part of their programming um, to keep them healthy, then, you know, maybe we would have some rewards that are offered. You take your medication and you have access to, you know, these different fun games. If you don't take your medication, you'll still have access, but the games aren't as fun or as entertaining or, um, you know, as vibrant, you know, that's just like a simple example, but you know, there can be more complex types of examples as well. So, I mean, the list goes on and on and on, but there are all these different ways that you can use applied behavior analysis. Um, one thing though about BCBAs is, you know, like therapists, they're a very ethical bunch. So you can't just jump out there and start doing stuff as a BCBA. You have to get a person who has experience and be supervised by them to be able to branch out to these different areas. So even though I'm a full-on BCBA, I can't just open my 
you know, shop tomorrow and put a shingle up and say, hey, I specialize in geriatric care and medication compliance. I have to work with somebody who already has that experience who can train me. Oh, and one final thing. I mean, like I said, there's a ton, but this one's really awesome. Uh, ABA has a branch called um, Organizational Behavior Management, which is how do you use positive reinforcement to increase your employees and your business's profit? So um, there's a man, his name's Aubrey Daniels, and he has written a really great book on the topic. And he, you know, does um, different work with like Coca-Cola and other big companies to uh, increase employee productivity, which buys into the company's profit or builds into the company's profit. And so then you build this structure where everybody's growing together. And I really love that branch as well. Wow. Um, That's really comprehensive because my knowledge of it is just, you know, the, the, behaviorists that are working with ABA, um, uh, with, with the group that, uh, with the population of autism, you know, and so that's a whole, you know, it's so much bigger and wider than that. So thank you so much for, um, sharing that. And, and you also say you have your own business drive ABC. So tell us about that. Okay, so I opened it in July of 2020. And currently I'm working to get contracts with school districts. I do a lot of presentation and training. I think you could probably tell from how much I talk that I am so passionate about, you know, the field of (laughs) school psychology and behavior. And I really love assessment. Um, I have a specialty in assessment in particular, and in training others. In the past, I was a teacher. And that experience as a teacher really has helped to set the foundation for me being an effective trainer with adults. Because basically, I learned from kids, what do people need to, you know, be effective learners? And how do they need to engage? And how can I make my presentations and content uh, interesting to the people who are receiving it. So that's a big part of what I do is just training on how to do appropriate, comprehensive, legally defensible types of assessments, um, and then also understanding some of the rules and regulations surrounding special education. Um, But my big thing is providing one-to-one behavior aids for school districts. So right Mm -hmm. now we have a major shortage of one-to-one behavior aids in schools. I mean, we have a major shortage of all employees, let's be honest. Um, And so you know, I can provide that support. And the difference, you know, between me and maybe another provider, some of these bigger companies is that first of all, I'm an actual person. So you can talk to me and I'm the head and, you know, I'm the CEO. But secondly, um, I have this extensive experience in working in education. And so I know how to build this culture of collaboration amongst my employees and with school districts so that we're all working together to meet a common goal. Um, There's not going to be any situations where someone is coming in and telling someone what to do. We're going to partner collaboratively and help the school district to build its vision. So I'm there, I'm working for them in that contracting capacity and we're working together ultimately to help kids. And that's my major goal. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. If, um, if people want to connect with you, you know, parents or, or or just individuals wanting to work with you, how can they learn more about you? Where, where can they go to get, get more information? Okay, so I'm building a website right now. I'm so excited. (laughs) Um, It should be up by the time people are listening to this podcast. I really hope that it's up. So you can go to striveabc.com and you can check out my website. You'll see my bio there. You can learn more about the services we provide. But if you wanted some more immediate resources or 
uh, explanations and things, you can always find me on Instagram. I have an Instagram called Practical School Psychology, and there are just a ton of, you know, uh, resources and links and things there that I've built over the years. And I just opened a TikTok. I'm trying to, you know, build it and again, connecting with the audience. And I, I, you know, I like to provide information in new and innovative ways. And I think that it's really important for us to be connected on social media because that's how people consume information. So um, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Awesome. And then of course, you know, um, for those individuals like parents or teachers that are listening in, that are tuning in for today's podcast episode, who, um, you know, are seeking additional supports and services for themselves and trying to be, you know, um, in, in continuing the work as caregivers and as educators for, you know, uh, and, and facing the stressors, right, of and the hardships of, of working with students, um, their children, um, feel free. You can also, you know, contact Jessica through Buena Vibra Psychological Services um, website at buenavibrapsych.org. You could go ahead and email us at hello, uh, hello at buenavibra.org um, to learn more about her and access psychotherapy services with her. Um, not as an advocate, <laughs> right? Um, but really for your own um, for your own support and help with whatever stressors you may be going through as a parent, as a caregiver, as a educator, um, helping another, uh, helping a student, helping your child. Um, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time, Jessica, to uh, be a guest here on Buena Vibra with Dora Ortiz. You know, the, the 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 goal here is really to provide nuggets of information to um, our listeners and to showcase that uh, access to wellness, mental health wellness, isn't just through the traditional psychotherapy psychotherapeutic process in an office, but that um, it can be um, it can be received in so many different um, ways, uh, working with different experts. And, um, and so I thank you so much for your time and, you know, for giving us your golden sharing with us a few of your golden nuggets. And, um, and again, for anyone who is interested in learning more about Jessica, um, outside of Buena Vibra, um, you know, I will go ahead and add on uh, her information on our show notes so you can go ahead and access, um, have access to that as well. Thank you again, Jessica, for, for being with us. Thank you so much. I really yeah. appreciate it. Everyone take care. Thank you. And to all that are here listening, if this is your first time tuning in, thank you for joining us. Go ahead and subscribe. Feel free to share this episode and others with uh, with others. And again, however you are, wishing you mucha, mucha, mucha buena vibra. You have just listened to an episode with Dr. Ortiz in Buena Vibra. I hope you enjoyed this episode and subscribe. Join me next week. And until then, sending you off with Buena Vibra. Buena Vibra.